So guys, what is the difference that Jesus makes? When I first sat down to answer this question for myself and for my life, um, it quickly became a bit overwhelming. Um, It's kind of a big question, and I couldn't quite see how I was supposed to just come up with one answer and preach a sermon on that. Um, So I took a step back and made a stab at looking over my life um, to see if I could at least identify maybe the biggest difference that he's made in my life so far. Um, I hope that, I'll be honest, if I gave this sermon again in 26 years again, um, that I'll have grown and changed enough to have a different answer. But let's give today a stab. Um, So I got out my old journals, um, and I took a trip into my past. Um, I'll be honest, at least half of those journals, maybe more, were almost entirely blank with only that first page filled out. Um, You guys know the one that says private, secure, don't touch, and then tells in elaborate detail, like the full page was filled up with all the warnings of how your soul would be forever forfeit were you to read this without permission. Um, Then was blank for the rest. I'm still not entirely sure why I kept accumulating more of these journals when I still had perfectly unused ones littered throughout my room. Best guess is I just had too much fun writing the preface to be reasonable at all. (laughs) Um, But some of them at least, thankfully, contained some insight into a younger Renee. Um, So I read the thoughts of, you know, a young, angsty teenage me, saw as she struggled and grew and eventually became the woman I am today. Still a work in progress, but since I can't see future me for comparison and finding out the difference, I stopped there. Um, (laughs) I've been a Christian all my life. Um, In fact, I've probably given my heart over to God at least 30 times, probably more. See, whenever I was a kid and in church or in Bible school, every single time they said, if you want God in your life to come up to the front, I felt that if I didn't go up to the front, that I was saying I didn't want God in my life. So I went up every single time (laughs) until finally one Bible teacher just had enough and was tired of going through the litany and questions with me week after week after week, sat me down and explained that it's really more of a one-off, Renee. God knows you've accepted Jesus into your life. You're chill. You can just stay seated the next time I ask this. Thank you. Goodbye. Um, so I've grown up in the church. My parents were missionaries and then later a pastoral couple. And I've also never really had that crisis of faith moment where I felt like I need to turn my life away from Christ or anything like that. So you may wonder how I could see any kind of difference or any kind of clear point if I don't have a clear before and after, you know, coming to Jesus, coming to God moment. Um, However, the thing is, as I delved into those journals and looked at the person that I was, um, it became pretty clear to me that while, yeah, my heart was in the right place, um, I talked to God daily and have always felt close in my relationship with him, like even when I'm arguing, even when I'm angry. But see, the thing was, my relationship with God has always been primarily with God the Father and God the Holy Ghost, God the Father being Um, that typical big guy in the sky, God Almighty that we talk about or think about. Um, And then God the Holy Spirit being that more spiritual, I don't know, emotional aspect maybe um, when you think of God. Not so much God as Jesus or the Son of God. Um, Yeah, I was thankful that he died on the cross, you know, allowed me to have this relationship with him. I accepted him as my Savior, the one who 
allowed me that connection with God and having a relationship. But I primarily just saw him as the sacrificial lamb, the necessary sacrifice for me to have a relationship with God. Um, I didn't really see him as God, incarnate God, sent to live as a human on earth and model how we should live and interact with others. Um, Therefore, like God made flesh someone that we should emulate with our lives. As I was reading through those journals, um, yeah, so I saw the person that I was before Jesus. She was a rude, self-centered person, guys. Um, Now, if you ask my friends, they'd all tell you I was great, which I know is a really egotistical thing to say, but you know if the shoe fits. I have a lot of birthday cards that'll back me up here. Um, But anyway, you ask my friends, they'll tell you I was a great kid, a real fun time, the kind of kid that would drop anything to lend a hand and help you out. I was a good friend. But the kicker is if you talk to people that weren't my friends, those people would probably tell you I was a bit of a jerk, if not a huge one. Um, I did and said things I'm beyond just not proud of, things that the person I am now is ashamed of. I've had to go back to a number of people and apologize for the ways I hurt them, the things I cruelly said. Um, Reading my own words in those journals, um, seeing how I described humans, my fellow people, in such callous and um, just selfish outlines was pretty eye-opening. But thank God, um, I do see a drastic turning point. Um, This isn't just a story of how I'm a crap person. The the point where I really met and encountered Jesus, when I finally put aside my pride and ego, and I said, turn my heart towards the humble walk of Christ. Um, After that point, the person I became, and I hope I'm really still becoming, um, is a person who has an entirely new framework of how my heart and mind wants to interact with people. See, after I graduated from college, I went back home to rural central PA to stay with my family for a bit. There, away from the constant mental, emotional, and physical um, demands of college and coursework, I finally had some time um, and the energy to really deal with how I wanted to deal with being a Christian and queer. So um, during this time, I took a little over a week to just fast and pray about this, And reading through my journals, this is where I see my writing really change. Um, I stop writing to God slash Father or God slash Holy Spirit, and I start interacting with God slash Jesus. See, that week I had gone to God, um, expecting to meet the God of judgment, God Almighty, the God of righteousness and power, and expecting to be convicted, to be made right and shown how um, I could be whole. And instead, I encountered Jesus, the God who walked the earth, um, lived among us, and knew our struggles so very intimately. I went to God, the Father of fractured soul, seeking to have those jagged or unsightly shards of mine removed. And instead, Jesus rolled up and pulled me back and showed the mosaics that all those different parts of my soul made up. Um, Jesus opening my eyes to the work of art that I was. Um, That first real encounter with Jesus really rocked me. And that started this turning point where I really started leaning into my new relationship with Jesus, the Son of God. So the difference that Jesus makes that I see highlighted in my own lived experiences is this. 
Jesus models the way to have a deeper and more fulfilling relationship. For me, I find this most exemplified in the passage of the Samaritan woman at the well. Um, So today I'd like to go through that with y'all and see what it has to say about the type of relationship with others that Jesus is offering us. Um, But I'll first give a brief background on the passage and the culture it's describing. Um, So Jesus and his disciples are all Jews. Um, That's a race that's direct descendants of God's chosen people. Um, Jesus at this time was on his way from the territory called Judea to his hometown in Galilee. Um, And the way to get there was through an area called Samaria. Um, Now, most Jews actually went the long way around and didn't cut right through Samaria because, see, Samaria was um, an area of mixed-race Jews. Um, These were Jews who had intermarried with the invaders of the time um, called Assyrians, and the Samaritans were a mixed-race descendant of those Jews. Um, So they were seen as tainted. Pure Jews viewed Samaritans as impure and actually hated that whole race because they felt that their kinsmen, the fellow Jews who had intermarried the Assyrians, had betrayed them by doing so. All right, so the passage here is John 4, 1 through 26, titled Jesus and the Samaritan Woman. I'm going to read this in New Living Translation. So Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John. Though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at that time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, If you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, You would ask me, and I would give you living water. But, sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, Anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water, then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband, for you've had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet, so tell me why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it's here on Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worshipped? Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship. 
And while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed, it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him in that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. So here in this passage, we see Jesus breaking all kinds of social taboos. Traveling through Samaria, then not only engaging and speaking with a Samaritan, but a Samaritan woman. And see, this is still a very patriarchal or male-elevating culture. Um, And this woman is showing up to the well at noon, probably has a less than pristine past. The the passage is both eye-opening and challenging to me, because personally, I find myself relating to the woman at the well and how she encounters and experiences Jesus. Um, The way Jesus engages her, the way he's showing me that God wants to engage with me um, and us, it still breaks my mind a little bit. I don't think I still fully get it. Um, It's just so intimate and empowering. Um, And because of that connection that I make with her, with the Samaritan woman, um, I then find myself challenged and moved to want to approach you like other humans in the same way that Jesus does here with this woman in this passage. When I've done so, not saying that I treat others the way Jesus does. Um, God, I wish I was on that level, but I'm definitely not. Um, But when I allow Jesus to reframe my heart and my mind and the way I engage with humans to the framework that he models here in this passage, I've been blessed beyond anything I had ever thought to want or expect out of life. See, here he sees this woman, and he sees the full and undiluted truth of who she is. And then knowing the good, the bad, and the ugly, he invites her to participate in worship, deciding she is worthwhile engaging and worth inviting into that relationship. He invites and opens the doors for us to engage with humans on that same level. So the first aspect that I want to focus on this passage is how Jesus saw this woman. And it's this, Jesus sees the whole truth of a person. Jesus saw the whole truth of the Samaritan woman. He saw and acknowledged her for the complex human that she was. He didn't see her in that crude black and white framework people tend to see others in, as hero or villain, good or bad, man or woman, Jew or Samaritan. He didn't whitewash her or try to gloss over her less than pristine aspects. Um, But nor did he just look at her and call her another sinner, someone defined by maybe the least palatable parts of her life. Um, We see this in John 14, 16 through 18. He says, go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Again, let me quickly put this into some context. Um, So typically at this time, women would come to get to the water at the well, which was located outside of the city, um, typically in the mornings and at the evenings. Um, There was a social aspect to going to the well, um, where the woman can get away from the town, but gather together and chat and socialize. 
Um, this woman, however, was coming to the well at noon. So Jesus would have been clued in right from the get-go, even if he wasn't a supernatural being with insights to the depths of our souls, that <laughs> she... <laughs> that she was coming at this time because she had some kind of social stigma. She was coming in the middle of the day to try and avoid running into the other townswomen there. But So in these verses, he not only acknowledges, hey, I see you and it's noontime, I know something's going on. He takes it a step further and calls out that not only has this woman gone through five marriages, she's currently living with a man she's not even hitched to right now. But what I find so heartening to note here is that at no point does Jesus deride, put down, or belittle this woman. At no point does he insinuate or use his words to make her feel less than. He calls out the truth in her life, who she is, without defining her by those potentially stigmatizing qualities. Um, It seems to me that we so often tend to pick our own picture of people. Either we gloss over parts that we're not comfortable with or we highlight the uncomfortable parts and so villainize that other person. We're comfortable dealing with a world of caricatures where issues and people are simplified to their most basic qualities um, so that they can fit in boxes to be dealt with, um, using a predefined set of rules for their particular classification. Like the drunk you always see on the corner, reducing our minds to that one defining qualifier, the drunk, the all-star American football player who is always the hero, all the follies hidden away under the rug. But what we see Jesus model here in this passage is the refusal to simply simplify this Samaritan woman to her most basic qualities, to suit predefined sensibilities, um, to comfortably classify her. Instead, Jesus' framework is one of seeing the entirety of a person and seeing the truth of a person. I'm not sure about you guys, but for me, there's something so freeing about being seen as a wholly complex person, um, for being seen as you actually are. Because I think that we as humans tend to be really sensitive to how we see ourselves reflected in the eyes of others. Um, We see the picture that they've crafted of us in their minds, and we take that on and we internalize it. We add that image to the countless others and use that to try and piece together who we are or who we should be, what our identity is. And it becomes kind of like a math equation. Sorry, guys, I studied engineering and it shows sometimes, but bear with me. It's like a math equation where we take each image we see reflected in the eyes of others and weigh it by how important that person, their opinion, and their relationship is to us. Add that all together, factor in maybe what we think we want to be, and then average it out. And that average reductive X that identity, we then try and take that on as who we are, regardless of how true that is to actually what's inside of us. So if enough people see us as X, we end up trying to put that on as who we are rather than accepting who we are inside. Um, I know we've talked a lot about identity in Mosaic here the past few months, and it's my hope that 
maybe you've gotten to see a glimpse or a vision of who you are in God's eyes. Because that image that you see reflected there, that's the version of yourself, version of your identity that's rooted in truth, that is your identity. The compilation identity that we've crafted, the one that's made up of reductive, simplified, simplistic versions of ourselves that others see, that identity constricts us and it limits us and it makes us always feel at least a little bit uncomfortable in our own skin. In my mind, it's kind of like trying on clothes, trying to find the perfect dress or suit at a department store and then going to a tailor. Like, our bodies are all unique. We're not a bunch of cookie-cutter humans, sizes 1 through 10. Uh, the suit that maybe fits your shoulders just right is hem too short, so you walk around feeling ungangly and awkward. The dress that's the color you've always dreamed of wearing is made for a body with far more slender hips than yours. Everything you put on hangs somewhere or clings somewhere it shouldn't. And you just can't feel both comfortable and attractive or handsome, if that's your preferred adjective. Um, everything you're putting on is a reductive version of what you should be wearing. The, then you go to a tailor and they actually measure you. The comfortable parts like the length of your arms and legs and uh, those awkward parts. And so I've actually never been to a tailor, but I've seen this movie and John. I uh, think I have a half-decent idea of what goes on there. And they measure you, see you and your body, and see for what it really is. And then when you put on that end product, the one that's been made just for you and your measurements, um, it finally feels right. It fits. It flatters. And it actually like, empowers and frees you. So I really resonate with this part here of finding that suiting identity. And maybe some of you can too. Because I feel like most of us grow up trying to reconcile those broadly painted caricatures of ourselves with who we feel to be inside. For me, it was being a pastor's kid, a tomboy, jock, intellectual, goofball, and sometimes a bit of a troublemaker. Um, but embracing any one of those identities, I felt like I was cutting off something crucial to the other ones, the other parts of me. It was only in embracing the person that I felt I was in God that I ever felt whole. And while that's awesome for me, yay me and discovering self-identity, yay, um, it wasn't until I really embraced Jesus that I reread this passage and was somehow confronted with the groundbreaking idea to me that by seeing others in their fullness, by allowing others to be their complex selves, I would offer some of that freedom that I felt to others. The freedom to be their complex, imperfect self around me. The freedom to maybe be more than you currently are, and maybe be less than you think you should be. Um, but luckily for me and for all of us, Jesus goes further in this story too and doesn't just see this woman because, of course, he doesn't. He's Jesus, and he always takes it one step further. Um, he sees her truth, her whole self, and then he finds that person worthwhile and worth engaging. second key I see in this passage is this, that Jesus considers a person worthwhile and worth engaging as they are. All right. um, we see this in John 4, 10, and 13 through 14. Jesus replied, 
If only you knew the gift God has for you and who you were speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. And then Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Jesus thinks this woman is worth pouring into, worth good things, even worth God's love and living water, and that this woman is worth all of these things as she is. He doesn't offer these things conditionally. He doesn't say, if you only knew the gift God has for you once you get your act together, woman. He doesn't say, if you would just sanctify yourself, you could then ask me for water. And he doesn't say anyone who drinks in this water repents and turns in their way. No, instead he just engages this woman right where she is and as she is. Jesus knows what he has to give here, and he knows that it's good. He outlines this beautiful and refreshing and living water that he wants to give to her as is unconditionally. This woman doesn't have anything inherently that she can offer to Jesus that would be to his advantage. She's not a woman with significant social standing in the town that he could take advantage of. Um, He's not out there desperate for companionship. He's out there with his disciples, his closest friends. Um, But he engages her, and he offers her this living water, not out of hope for having a better day or getting something out of the interaction and encounter, but rather just because he saw her and decided she was worthwhile and worth engaging and worth giving what he had to offer. And, all right, I'm not sure how many of you have been on the wrong end of a power dynamic, but if you have, maybe you'll resonate with me here. And maybe if you haven't, maybe you can see some instances in your life where you're on the privileged end and maybe have a better awareness of how the person on the other side might be experiencing the interaction, right? Um, Anywhere. This encounter here, it hits me dead center because of the way Jesus handles this power dynamic. I see this woman here, and like I said, it's no secret that she's not ivory white. Uh, She's here at the well in the middle of the day trying to avoid the townswoman. Jesus knows this full well, notwithstanding that supernatural knowledge he has. And so when I read this, I'm thrown back to those times where I was in her situation, where I knew what the guy across from me was probably thinking. I knew. I knew what guys like him thought of people like me. She was a Samaritan woman running into a Jewish man at a well in the middle of the day. She knew. I'm thrown back to instances where... I'm confronting or encountering, you know, this Caucasian, cisgendered, not trans, uh, male, able-bodied guy who is, of course, typically in some leadership role, maybe even the pastor at a church. And they know I'm gay, and they look at me, and I look in their eyes, and what I see, I see they're doing me a solid, just deigning to talk to me. They aren't talking with Renee, the person, They're talking to a gay project. On this wrong end of the power dynamic, I've ceased to be a person to engage with and instead become an object. Um, When they look at me, I know what to expect from this exchange. By now, I've built up 
my heart and protections. Um, when the pastor looks at me and tells me how he can fix me, how if I'll only change X or Y, he can then give me Z. And you know what? I'm honestly happy at this point that at no point did he call me a fag or tell me that I was going to burn in hell for eternity. Um, as the object in that relationship, I've been conditioned to just be happy when I'm a project because at least then I'm not something worse. In those power dynamics, that's my metric. Anything better than outright aggression is a gift. But see, I put myself in this woman's shoes and in this passage... Jesus doesn't just not confront this woman with derision or aggression. Instead, he offers her living water. The guy with everything offers freely this beautiful gift, this gift to partake in communion with the rest of the church, the rest of God's children. I can't help but project my own experiences onto the woman at the well here. Um, I can't help but read this and see herself, um, see myself in her shoes looking at this Jew, and she thinks she knows what's going to come next. Then Jesus does the last thing she could have been expecting, and her life is forever changed. See, the very first members meeting I came to at this church a year back, I ended up going to the meeting where we as a church broached what we were going to do um, about the rules that it had been decided were immutable and unchangeable, by our previous church affiliation at large, um, in part about how we as a church engage the gays slash LGBTIA community, right? And Brad stood up in that meeting, you know, a Caucasian, cis, able-bodied male guy, and said, um, and I'm 100% paraphrasing here, um, <laughs> hey guys, we as a church have historically believed everyone is welcome and has a seat at our table. I can't recall the precise words, but there was a, that, that sentiment, guys, I, I just broke. I, I started crying in the middle of the meeting. Um, you know, I thought I knew my place. I had resigned myself to a life spent coming to the well at noontime in the middle of the day. And here's this pastor. More significantly, here's this church and this whole community that is saying and looking at me, like Jesus looked at that woman at the well, saying, we want you to be drinking this living water with us. Um, And not because I had something to offer them, not because I'm a great worship leader. Anyone who's been unfortunate enough to go to karaoke with me knows I can't carry a tune. Um, But just because of who I was, because my whole identity they saw and saw was worth engaging and offering a place at the table. Like, what a beautiful way to look at our fellow humans, right? To see them like Jesus does, and to know that they're worthwhile just as they are, with their beauty and, yeah, all of their cracks and flaws, and to encourage us to engage with them, offering a place at the table, offering that living water just as they are. And, okay, I've made points that humans are beautiful, and, yeah, they're worth engaging Humans are, that's a pretty good idea. Um, And while that sounds like a great game plan for better relationships, um, don't really think it gets the full way to a deeper relationship. Um, So let's keep reading the story and take a look at the final piece here, um, where Jesus goes deeper yet in this relationship. Um, And my point here is this. 
the third point I want to make is Jesus extends an invitation here to participate. In John 4, 21 through 24, Jesus replied, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you were worshiping the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him in that way, for God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus invites us to worship in spirit, in truth, as equals. Jesus here is responding to the Samaritan woman's question she posed, so prophet, should one worship at place A or place B? And Jesus' response here, you'll see, completely rejects the question of physical worship, A or B, in or out, based on some technical differences of opinion or culture or race. Instead, he counters with an invitation to join and to participate in spiritual worship and in truth. I also find it significant here that his response doesn't downplay or disregard that he and the woman are from different cultures and different races. He doesn't say everyone is the same, so we can participate, therefore. Um, He says instead, everyone, regardless of different cultures or identities, is invited to participate and invited to that same universal spiritual worship. He invites her to worship in truth right after calling out her truth that she's been married to five different guys and is living to a guy she's not even hitched with. My interpretation here is that Jesus is just reinforcing that whole person invitation, that he's inviting her to come participate in spirit, in truth, the truth of you that that he sees. He's saying, don't put on your church mask to come worship. I'm inviting you, not your false or put-upon identities. That invitation to participate is an invitation for a two-way relationship and is what I think allows this relationship to have true depth. Um, Without participation, where we're worshiping in spirit together, it's a a one-way relationship transactory relationship it's jesus giving or if we're applying this to our own lives it's us pouring out um but that's it really Uh, a one-way relationship like that is doomed to be emotionally shallow at least in some places Um, there are depths it just can't reach but when we open up our hearts and invite that other person in to participate open ourselves up for that two-way relationship I think we can unlock whole new depths to that relationship. Um, I can only try and describe it as going from like a 2D relationship to a 3D. Um, Looking at a 2D painting and it's gorgeous, it's got this pastel landscape, but then encountering the 3D version where you can touch and smell an experience. Um, It's just a whole new paradigm. Uh, It's like Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz going from black and white to Technicolor. And sorry, Brad, that's the extent of my media references today. (laughs) Um, When I was reviewing my life, looking for that big difference that Jesus had made, I told you that 
It was that he offers deep and fulfilling relationships. Before I had really embraced Jesus and centering my framework of life around him, I saw people for what they could offer me. I reduced them to their simplest qualities. And is that person a good time? Does that person offer X, Y, or Z that would complement me and my personality or lifestyle? Um, If they didn't have those things, if I didn't think that they would better my life by what they had to offer, I wasn't going to waste my time, my life with them. Um, They had nothing to offer. Um, And for those that were worthwhile, for the most part, I would engage. Um, But I would get out of that relationship what was good for me. It was still a transactory relationship. If they needed me to offer X so that they would be my friend and offer Y, um, we could work that out because I liked Y, but it wasn't a true relationship. And Jesus has offered me, though, uh, a different and fulfilling type of relationship. Um, the most glaring example of this in my life is with my friend Amy. Um, for any of you that may know her, she did go to Mosaic back when she was on this side of the country, so I've okayed this by her first. But we knew each other in college, um, And I'll be honest, I was an absolute jerk. And I'm using that as a censored version of the type of person and the way I interacted with her. Um, Because I was beyond not a great friend, I was not a great human to her. She had nothing that I thought I wanted. She was younger, she wasn't cool, um, she wasn't worth my time. I said cutting and derogatory things and put her down, and I felt no guilt about it. When I came back to Philly, though, I was a different person. Um, After graduated college, I'd had that serious me time and really encountered Jesus and been leaning into him and having him reset my framework of how I saw people and engaged with them. And so when I met her again at Mosaic those years later, um, At that time, she was going through coming out and reconciling that with being a conservative Christian. And so instead of seeing her as, what can she offer me? Had the facts about her changed? Was she now suddenly cool? Was she now having something to offer to me? No. The facts about her and the truth of her hadn't changed. But now, when I see her, I saw her as a complex person. And just by seeing her as that whole person in my heart, I knew she was worth the time, worth engaging, worth grabbing coffee and sharing our experiences, worth being there for her to lean on. Um, And turns out I was so blessed by that second chance at a relationship. Um, Through those non-self-focused, non-egotistical eyes, I saw what an amazing person she was. Um... I saw that we could end up sharing our lives and experiences and feelings together, um, not just about stuff about being gay or being in the church, but just human things, Um, just sitting on the roof looking at the stars, figuring out what Netflix show to watch. Um, You know, we have participated in each other's lives, shared the ups and downs. Um, I had opened up my heart not for a transactory relationship, not expecting something in return for something that I could give in, but just open it up to participate and experience life together um, and just connect 
with another person. Um, by opening up in that relationship, she was then able to speak truths in my lives I needed to hear. We were able to share life together. And that deeper and truly connected relationship, that's what Jesus offers. Um, that's what I realized I want out of life and my experiences with other people. True connection. Um, and I hope that as I learn to more and more emulate him and Jesus, I find my relationships are able to go deeper still. I hope that maybe this story, this uh, Jesus model, resonates with some of you too, um, and that maybe you'll be able to let Jesus uh, reset some of your frameworks and be as blessed as I have been um, to really experience relationships with other people. Thanks, guys.